Hello and welcome to the July edition of Jewish Views. I'm John Kay and I'll be talking to Rabbi Alan Plancy. Alan is the new mayor of the borough of Hartsmere and he's also the first UK rabbi to become a mayor. And I'm Tony Honigberg, and I'm going to be interviewing Jess Robinson, who was a Britain's Got Talent contestant and impressionist, and she's going to be appearing at JW3 on the 18th of July. And I'm Kate Fulton, and I'm going to be interviewing Howard Jacobson about his new book, Live a Little. He's the well-known Man Booker Prize winning author, and I'm having a little chat with him about falling in love in your 90s. And he's going to be at JW3 on the 11th of July at 8pm. And I'm Clive Roslin and I'll be talking to another author, John Steinberg. And he's just written the most fascinating novel called Nadine. It's his third novel and we'll be talking about that. And our rabbinic thought for the month this month comes from Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner, the senior rabbi for Reform Judaism. But first, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. It was revealed that an imam who took part in the BBC Tory leadership debate had made inflammatory accusations about Zionists hiding behind the Holocaust. Abdullah Patel was one of the guests chosen by producers to put a question to Boris Johnson, Jeremy Hunt and the three other then contenders. Whilst reminding the politicians to avoid using language that could incite Islamophobia, he'd made controversial statements himself, including a tweet that every political figure on the Zionist payroll is scaring the world about Corbyn. The Board of Deputies asked the BBC to correct their claim that the tweet had merely been anti-Israel, stating that it was in fact offensive and a well-known anti-Semitic trope. The captain of a British Airways flight from Tel Aviv to London ejected a group of 18 youngsters after one of them, who was apparently drunk and abusing the cabin crew, made a comment about having a bomb in his luggage. All of them had apparently been at a stag party in Israel. All the bags belonging to the group were removed from the flight, which took off shortly afterwards, with the young men remaining in the terminal. The director of the London Beth Din has been trying to reassure consumers after media reports that two delis sold trafe. Goff's Deli in Manchester and Rosemans in Liverpool have lost their kashrut licences. Rabbi Jeremy Conway said there was a need for a professional system of inspection and supervision. In Israel, up to 3,000 people took part in the first Pride Parade to be held in Ranana. There are some 80,000 residents in the city, with about a quarter of them orthodox. The majority of the marchers on Ranana's main street were believed to be under 21. A small rally against the parade was held outside a local synagogue. Britain's oldest synagogue, London's Bevis Marks, has been awarded £2.7 million by the National Lottery for conservation work and to help towards funding a new cultural, educational and religious centre. The synagogue near Allgate is a Grade 1 listed building, which was opened in 1701 by the Spanish and Portuguese Sephardi community after the readmission of Jews to Britain in 1656. And finally, the former MP George Galloway has been sacked from his weekly show by Talk Radio after sending an allegedly anti-Semitic tweet. Mr Galloway posted on the social media site after the Champions League final between Liverpool and Tottenham, praising the Merseyside club's win, adding no Israel flags on the cup, apparently because of Spurs' strong links with the Jewish community. The station said, as a fair and balanced news provider, Talk Radio doesn't tolerate anti-Semitic views. And that's the monthly roundup. Thanks very much, Viv. Now, £2.8 million is coming from the National Lottery towards Beavis Marks Synagogue, the oldest synagogue in the country. Clive, in fact, you know it quite well because you got married there. I only got married there. I've attended services there many, many times. The oldest synagogue in this country and, of course, uh, the first Sephardi synagogue in this country. Well, the Sephardim were the first people in this country. You're quite used to the Sephardim type of synagogue and service. How typical of that is Beavis Marks? Beavis Marks is the outstanding example of it. Uh, sadly, its congregation is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but it is a typical Anglo-Sephardi service, and it is the most beautiful, beautiful synagogue. It's not very big, is it? It's, well, it's big enough. 
Well, it doesn't hold that many people, that's what I meant. Well, no, it is. It holds, I don't know how many it holds, but it holds quite a few people. And when it's chandeliers, it has the most beautiful chandeliers, and when they're lit, it's absolutely stupendous. Am I right in thinking they're, they're candles, aren't they? They're not uh, electric chandeliers. Well, as it comes from the 17th century, yeah, they, they, I, I would have thought it, but they would be candles. Yeah, yeah. They I, have I electric think, lamps. No, then. no, I think they still, there are still candles. I think them. they're making, because, as you, as you said, Clyde, that the, there are fewer services, I think it's going to become much more of a sort of cultural place to visit and I presume that's what some of the money is going to be spent on actually creating a whole new sort of well, I don't want to use the word museum like but but it's to preserve and to inform people it's all educational I think yeah. exactly it is immensely beautiful it has such an amazing history some of the most famous names in Sephardi Jewish history all were there it is without doubt one of the most unbelievably amazing synagogues in the world. And the 2.8 million, as Kate was implying, was because it is such a cultural icon it is and, will the, be, and opens up to the, the entire tourist Together with the synagogue like. in uh, Hungary, in, I can't think in of Budapest. The, in Budapest. Yeah, the big one. Together with Budapest, it is two, they are the two most famous synagogues in the world they really are but you would think some central london synagogues well i'm thinking of another beautiful building st petersburg place in bayswater they might say well 2.8 you know million we could do with, with with some of that because we're a very attractive shawl that holds yeah, but thousands they of people don't have the history of Beavis Marx. Beavis Marx is the history of Judaism in this country. It is the history of Jews coming back into the country there when Oliver no Cromwell invited Jews back into the country. Exactly. Right, indeed. And it was built as a result of that. And it is a listed building as well, isn't it? Yes, I don't know if they need is. repairs doing to the building, when, but presumably some of the money will be spent on that. When Oliver Cromwell invited Jews back in, it was the Dutch Jews. Yes. So were the Dutch Jews yes, Sephardi? Yes, they were Sephardi. The, oh, really? the Dutch, the, the, Dutch Jews, the Dutch Jews in Amsterdam, come from the Inquisition. They'd, they'd come from Spain and Portugal because the, the, the Dutch allowed them to set up in Amsterdam. Oh, right. They allowed they the Jews in. Yeah. That's why the two most famous Sephardi synagogues in the world, one is in Amsterdam mm. and the other one is in, is in yeah. London, Beavis Marks. Very interesting. We should look forward to how they actually spend that £2.8 million because it is obviously such an important shul to the entire UK Jewish community. To the entire Jewish world, not just this country. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. They say it's funny how some people can make an impression on you, but our next guest is arguably funny at doing an impression of you and many others. <laughs> Jess Robinson appeared on Britain's Got Talent back in 2017 and hasn't really looked back. She's been heard and seen on numerous programmes since then, from ITV's The Imitation Game to Dead Ringers on BBC Radio 4. Now she'll be here at JW3 on the 18th of July, and I'm delighted to say that she's joined us on this episode of The Jewish Views to tell us more. Hello. Hello, Jess. <laughs> Welcome and thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Before we start, yeah. tell me a little bit about your background. My background, well, I was born in Edgware and then when I was about three or four, my parents moved out to a little village in Hertfordshire called Aldbury. My dad was a graphic designer and, mm. and he's still a watercolour artist and he wanted to be near the beautiful scenery there. And my mum, who had a flourishing piano teaching career in North London, moved to this village where she was more or less the only person that could play the piano in the village. And so was... Sounds like a joke. Oh it? my gosh. Well, she was swiftly taken into the little Christian church where she still plays the organ every Sunday. <laughs> and I was brought up singing in the church choir. So um, I've had a very mixed background, which I love. And when it comes to giving peace at the end of every... Um, every uh, Christian service, the vicar and some of the people in the village come up to her and shake her hand and say, Shalom, Jackie. And it's just really <laughs> lovely. So it's, it's really nice to be part of, well, any community, anything, really. Anything. Yeah. So, so you had a little bit of sort of entertainment knowledge yeah. growing up. Yeah, my, my grandpa arts. was a jazz pianist. And my, what was his name? Jules Rubin. Okay. And my grandma, who 
only died last September at the age of 103. Wow. Came over on the last kinder transport with, I think, 70 children in her care and then went to study at the Royal Academy of Music and she was a pianist, so a very musical family. Right. Musical and, and arty and poor. And, and your <laughs> education on entertainment, where did that come from? Once we'd moved to this little village and mum was playing the organ in the church, she also started playing for ballet lessons at a school called the Arts Educational School, which mm-hmm. was in Tring. And I got a music scholarship to go there because I was terrible at any sort of sport. And I thought that going to a normal comprehensive school would be like Grange Hill. And I thought I'd get my head flushed down the toilet. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought I'd be better at ballet instead. So I went there. I was not good at ballet. I was terrible. But I was good at, at imitating the teachers. And that's how the career in impression started. <laughs> yeah, I've been imitating for years. I don't know. You've been on lots of things. Who do you, who do you impersonate? Give us a list of people. Um, and how, of course. And how? Oh, well, I do. Uh, I started off singing classically. People like Catherine Jenkins doing mm. oh, no caro, and things like that. And Barbara Streisand doing Don't Tell Me Not to Live, Just Sit and Putter. So I've got Barbara Streisand, I've got a bit of Judy Garland doing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. But then I've got people like Amy Winehouse. And I really love, I love the classics like Billie Holiday because mm. her voice is so distinctive and haunting um trying to think what she sings now uh, this suspense is killing me i can't stand uncertainty little things like that and then stacy solomon oh my god good jewish girl oh i love her and um <laughs> just a little bit of cheryl i've got to speak in impressions as well so there's anyone Anyone so you know when and you, don't know. When you find you're doing impressions with your voice, yeah. do you find you have to put the facial expression on to get the voice? A lot of people have said to me, oh my gosh, what, just weird to look at you because you sort of morph into these people. Mm. I don't really know what my face is doing because I don't really practice in front of the mirror. So I don't know okay, is the answer. The, the other question <laughs> then is when you're impersonating them, yeah. do you think of what they look like in your head? Yeah, I th- I guess I do. I can. This sounds awful. I can sort of feel them in my mouth. That's not. That sounds really wrong, doesn't it? So um, that could lead on to another question. Well, there's a reason I'm not I don't do men. So there we are. <laughs> have you ever met any of the people you impersonate? I have. Stacey Solomon oh. was absolutely lovely. She was like, oh my god, you sound like my best friend. Um, so she was really nice. I met I met Janet Straight Polter. And did Janet to Janet, and that was scary. I really thought she was going to punch me, but she was nice-ish. And uh, one person I'm dreading meeting, actually, is Natalie Cassidy, who plays Sonia in EastEnders. Because I've heard from a friend that is in EastEnders that she doesn't like this impression, even though I think it's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good to me. I wonder what she really sounds like in... uh, Oh, just like this. I'm sure of it. <laughs> Tell us about the night at JW3. What are you going to be doing? I've got my three-piece band who are called Jessington World of Adventures. And we I'm going to talk about my grandma a little bit in this show. I like to... There's, there's loads of comedy, loads of impressions, some stand-up, and plenty, plenty of music and original songs. But I also like to talk about where I grew up, mm. like the, the, the little village called Aldbury and, and the influence that my grandma had on me because she was always very supportive. And, I, you know, I think of what she was doing when she was 24 and what I was doing when I was 24. And it's just completely in, incomparable. So in a light way, yeah. you know, I, I was looking through my diary and I've I had a crush on Pat Sharp from Funhouse and she had a a crush on a rabbi in an internment camp so it's just so (laughs) so different but like it's just funny to see the parallels and and where we diverge and yeah I found her very inspiring but yes just you'll hear everybody from Shirley Bassey singing I've got a brand new combine harvester to you know when when you did that you see you did the mouth Oh, yeah. Shirley Bassey. I mouth. guess you've got to do that because she's got quite a tight mouth mm. when she sings, doesn't she? I guess that helps create the sound that, that she makes. 
How do you move with the times? I watch a lot of YouTube. I've been doing a lot of Theresa May recently, but obviously she's out now. Can you do Boris? In no. Case, in case he gets in. No. <laughs> and I think I might refuse anyway. Yeah. But no, I can't or do Or Jeremy Boris. Hunt. Yeah. No, no, I can't. I'm just, I can't do men. I could probably, you know, just about manage a Joe Pasquale. <laughs> but, you know, no, just can't do blokes. <laughs> so I, I stick to what I'm good at. Hillary Clinton, if she ever gets in, would be fine. <laughs> when, when you hear voices, do you have to learn the voice or do you find it just comes to you naturally? Um, some I have to sit down and I will listen, like I'll get a clip off YouTube and then I'll record myself imitating them and then I'll listen and compare and listen and compare and it all gets quite anal. But yeah, sometimes it's really painstaking and other times they do just come naturally. Mm. Any impression that makes it in the show has been run past my mum. Right. So I'll ring her, ring her up, and, <laughs> ring her up and say, what do you think of this? She'll go, oh, I think she's a bit more nasal. Uh, by the way, everybody says that is not how my mum sounds. <laughs> I swear it is. It's Jackie Robinson. So, Jess, thank you very much for coming to see us. Thank Let's you just for say again, me. you're going to be here at JW3 on the 18th of July. And the show is called A Work in Progress. And yes. tickets are available at JW3.org. Yeah. Thank you very much. Lovely. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, when you think of a famous Jewish author, who is it? Moses? Well, he wasn't much of a writer, I suppose. But obviously, it's Howard Jacobson. And I'm delighted to be speaking to him now about his new book, Live a Little. Live a Little. Is that a command? Or how, how, do, you, how do you say Can that? Let's go back to Moses. I, li- I like being associated with Moses. I see myself as a kind of mosaic figure coming down the mountain with the tablets and discovering that the people don't want to know. They don't listen. That is the story of my life. I've come down the, t- the mountain now with 22 novels. Do they take any notice? Do my people take any notice? Nah. I always like titles to have as many meanings as possible. And I never thought of it as particularly Jewish. But my wa- when I came up with it, to my wife, who is Jewish, she said, it's very Jewish. I said, is it very Jewish? She said, yeah, live a little. So live a little. And I guess that's in there too. But mainly it is just, it's ironical, live a little. The irony being that the two people who are at the center of the book are both 90. So they have already lived a lot. So it also means there might be a little bit more life for them. Or it's just a joke about being old. Not that being old is particularly funny. Well, it is in this book, I hope. But it isn't for me. What made you want to explore love in your 90s? To be honest with you, I don't know. I, was, I started to write a book about, as all, as all writers do, and not just Jewish writers, when they get to my sort of age, once the ailments start to kick in, you think you either give in to them or you write a funny book about it. So I started to write a funny book about it, but it was too easily and obviously funny. You know, the usual stuff, particularly for a man, the business of incontinence, if you don't mind me, my saying that on this podcast. So I started to make the usual jokes and made myself laugh. And then I thought, this is just, you know, this is, these, these jokes are too easy. So I thought, maybe I need to make, put distance between him and me and make him a little bit older, a lot older. And I, th- I got interested in the idea of making him a lot older because I know a lot of people who are a lot older. I seem to know, it goes with the territory, of course, given how old I am, I'm likely to know more, more people of a venerable age than I did once. But the number of 90-year-olds, men and women that I know, who are in good mental shape has struck me over the last 10 years. I thought, okay, make him 90, that's all right. Is that quite uplifting then? To speak? Sometimes I go into homes and, and I, I read with groups of people who are in their 90s and who are absolutely sharp. And it gives you this sense of you can keep going. Yeah, it gives you that sense. It gives you that sense that, you are, that you've got more life left. It also reminds you that allowing that, you know, that the other ailments don't get you too much, that there's a lot to be said for, for being old, a lot to be said for your intelligence. You've seen a lot. You've got no illusions. You're not interested in the fashion of the hour. You're not careful what you say. You're not frightened of offending anybody. They don't, they don't care whether they offend anybody. But I should have said that was what took me to my 90-year-old hero. But what really made this book happen was that no sooner did I think of a 90-year-old hero than, and I didn't realize I was going to be writing what turns out to be a love story, because it is a love story, actually. But I suddenly there grew fully formed as though, you know, out of, 
Adam's rib, not that she would allow that metaphor. This woman, Beryl, I just, I can't account for it. It sounds like an amazing mystery. It sounds like, you know, God tapped me on the shoulder and gave me a character. It does sometimes feel like that when you're writing. You have to be careful not to be too mystical about it. But you don't always know where things come from. She, I've got no idea how she came about. I know where I've got some of her voice from and some of her thoughts from. I can think of a number of women who are a bit like her, but her appearance, who she is, never she just sprang fully formed to the to the point where I even wondered whether I needed him. She she steals the show. It's her book. It is without doubt her book. As I'm going through now with my wife's help to find some sections that I will read out at festivals and JW3 and things. The best bits are, are the best bits are her. So why she was gifted to me, how she was gifted to me, I don't know. But I've never had more fun writing about anybody in my life, and I now wonder whether I shouldn't have started off writing about old women or maybe just women. Maybe it was, maybe I've written too many books from a man's point of view. I always argued I only know men. How can I write from any other position? But I do feel that when I was writing Beryl, I kind of knew her. I liked her very much. I appreciated her. Beryl sounds like a composite of, of lots of different people. Yeah, but I couldn't tell you who. She is very much herself to me. As I started writing her, I, I thought, I know this woman perfectly. I knew what she was going to say. I just knew her. She, is she my mother? No, she isn't my mother. Is she my wife? No, she isn't my wife. Is she my, my sister's very, very strong woman. So maybe there is something of all of them in her, but she's absolutely herself. And I delighted in her freedom from the usual fears. One of the things is, and this has only just occurred to me as I'm talking to you now, that if these days, if you're writing as a man, you've got to be careful what you say. All the time now I'm being asked by an editor here, an editor there, a publisher in this country, a publisher in that country, people to whom I might write an article. Could you just be careful what you say in questions of gender, race, or age? You've got to be so careful what you say. And suddenly with Beryl, I had somebody who wasn't herself careful, who says the most outrageous, shockingly outrageous things. And I thought I could revel in, in her, her freedom, gave me my own freedom back. Because when I began as a writer, I began, wasn't that I was a particularly young man, but I began feeling quite rebellious. I thought, I'm doing something quite shocking here. And it was a little bit of a shocking book compared to what was being written in the 80s then. And then slowly but surely, that's not the kind of book I've been writing. Not because I think I've been a coward, but maybe cowardice is forced upon you by the age. You're self-censoring all the time. And with Beryl, self-censorship was, was gone. I was freed from it. When you were researching the book, did you speak to many 90-year-olds? Research? I don't do research. I'm a novelist. I'm not a historian. I didn't research it. Did I speak to many 90-year-olds? Did I say, excuse me, how old are you? Can you tell me what it's like? I know enough. My mother is 96. My mother-in-law is 106. Seriously? You've got a 106-year-old mother-in-law? I have a very, very close friend who is the journalist Donald Zeck, who I've written about frequently, very, very well-known, was a very well-known Jewish journalist in the 1960s, and he's still well-known to people who remember that period. He's 100. He is terrific. I talk to him. I see him. I give him my work to read. He talks to me about my work. He's as an acute and astute a critic as there can possibly be. I don't need, I didn't need anything, really. I just, and anyway, I've said she was divinely inspired, and she went on being divinely inspired. When you think about people reading your book, who do you imagine your audience? Me, just, I'd like to think millions of me. But it's probably more like thousands of me, and for all I know, it's just tens of me. But some, I have to imagine that what pleases me pleases them. Otherwise, you're in trouble. You start thinking, I must please that kind of almost. That's no good. You have to do the thing that you like, which is why any kind of censorship is such an intrusion, really, and such a spoiler of your work, because... If, you, if you're censoring not according to your own sense of what's right or decent to do, but according to somebody else's, you lose your own, you, you lose confidence in your own voice. So if I'm amused, I expect everybody by what I write, and I am often, I expect other people to be amused. And if I make myself cry, I think I'm going to make other people cry. And this is proven true when I talk in public. When I speak the words, when I read from the novel, they, the, the audience gets it absolutely. But because we are living in an age that's where people are not quite so trained in reading, I sometimes people will actually come up to me and say, I didn't know what it sounded like. But now I've heard you read it. Now I know what it, how it should sound. It will make a difference. 
And I'm pleased, I'm pleased they think that, but I also wonder why they didn't know what it sounded like. People are not, we were taught to read so closely in my lovely little Stan Grammar School in the north of England. We had good English teachers. We were taught, we taught, we scrutinized words. We knew, we talked about tone. We know, we knew how, how, how sentences should sound. We knew what irony was. That skill that was once the first skill at school, the first first thing we learned, the only thing I was interested in learning was how to read, how to hear how words work, how to hear the life in the words. I knew what a book was. And a lot of people today don't know what a book was. And then it which is the usefulness of literary festivals, I suppose. They need the author to turn up and read it for them. And then they, and then they get, and then when that happens, I discover that the things that make me laugh will make them laugh. And the things that make me cry will make them cry. Is this book set in, is there, is there a Jewish setting? Not really. There's a little bit of, there wasn't going to be any. No, that's not right. I began when my hero was a version of me at my age. He was going to be called Shishler or something. Shishler, I think was the name I had, which gives the game away a bit. And he was going to be very Jewish. And that was the other reason I thought, no, no, no more. Now he has a Jewish mother and a Maltese father that, Ask me where I got the Maltese from. I didn't research it, only to the degree that you could have a Maltese father and a Jewish mother. And they live in Little... Is there a Little Stanmore in London? I've made it Little Stanmore anyway. Sounds right, doesn't it? As though there could be anything smaller than Stanmore. This is Little Stanmore. And they live in Little Stanmore a long time ago, and they're there when the war starts. And... He is, there's something Jewish-ish about his relations to his mother, but otherwise there's not very much in it. The, the woman, the 90-year-old woman whom he meets halfway through the book, and, and in a way, for, yeah, say, and in a way falls for, they fall for each other, is not averse to calling him a little Jew boy. Makes my publishers very uncomfortable. I say, I can say that. I, I'm allowed to say that. I don't know how I'd feel about that in a novel by somebody else, but I can say that. And anyway, that's clearly the way she talks about everybody. But he's not, it's not a major part of his life. I should say, though, that the one element, which I suppose is quite Jewish, is that he, he's living in, on the Finchley Road now. It's all set on the Finchley Road, um, quite f- not far from Regent's Park. Not far from JW3, actually. Very close to J-Dub. Very close. You could probably throw a paper bag from the window of my hero's room. But he's very, he's 90, but very erect and keeps himself very smart because his story is a story of shame. He is ashamed of something he did when he was a little boy. He's never married. He's never had children. He's never felt that he can wish another version of himself upon the world. And his life is the story of shame written this kind of thing before. I like writing about shame, uh, mortification, humiliation, one of my subjects. But in order to kind of, in order to deal with all that, he's kept himself very smart and very elegant and upright. And so the widows of North London, the widows of that part of the world who have names like Wolfsheim, the widow Wolfsheim is the widow that's most interested in him. And there are a number of widows who are chasing him and their car, as he's walking along, their cars pull up. The drivers pull up their car and the window is wound down and the widow Wolfshine, who is very, very well known for her legs, although she's in her 80s, she still has wonderful legs, tries to get him into the car. So I suppose that's a, a, Jew, a comedy of Jewish widowhood in North London. Yeah, there's that. Thank you. So you're going to be at JW3 on the 11th of July at 8pm and tickets are available from jw3.org.uk. Howard Jacobson, thank you very much for talking to me on The Jewish Views this month. Thank you for allowing me to talk to you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Borumwood and Elstree Synagogue's Emeritus Rabbi was re-elected for the Conservatives in Brookmeadow Ward in Borumwood in May's local elections. It's believed he's the first UK rabbi to become a mayor. Alan Plancy is the new mayor of Hartsmere, and as mayor, he'll support the work of mental health charity Mind, as well as Camp Simcha, which assists Jewish families coping with serious childhood illness. He continues to play an active role in the shawl he led for 30 years, and he serves on Norwood's Advisory Council. I want to point out as well that I'm chairman of East Hearts Council, which has a similar role to being a mayor, and we are both Hartford County councillors. Now, Alan, being elected a councillor in a way is a different role 
to being mayor of Ibarra, can you, as a local politician, stop being a local politician for a year and then be more ceremonial, if you like, and independent? I think we have to be honest with ourselves. The politics which we have in Parliament at the moment, I think people are, shall we say, fed up with, but it's going on. Local politics should not be political, irrespective of the party that you belong to. You're there to work for the people of the area. And I remember that when I was appointed as a Conservative councillor, somebody came up to me and said, from the Labour, you'll now work for me. I said, I will be working for everyone, not just for you. We have to represent the whole community. So there's very little difference other than this year, I can't get involved in decision-making because I've got to take a step back. However, to be able to help the community, that will never stop, irrespective of what badge I'm wearing. So when you're chairing the council meetings and a vote comes, do you not vote? We will be able to vote. It's not necessary because we've got a majority. There's 28 or 29 Conservatives. There's uh, seven Labour and four Lib Dems. So I think I just keep quiet and let them get on with it. (laughs) So they can't accuse me of anything. But we have a right to vote on that. That we have a right to vote. But was it politics itself that drew you into becoming a local councillor after you were a a, I must say, I've always been interested. And, And in fact, I have to blame the last two chief rabbis, Lord Sachs and the late chief rabbi Jacobowitz. For 15 years, I represented them on interfaith. And it was an amazing feature that the people that I met in those years were just outstanding. And I'm talking about the top people. But at the same time, we had an opportunity of working with the wider community. And when you start that, you can't stop. And being a rabbi did not stop me from going and working with the outside world, whether they were, and, and I'll tell you this, I remember a story, which is true. Lady Jacobovitz phoned me up. She said, Alan, I'm very disappointed with you. I said, well, what have I done? She said, you go to church more than you go to the synagogue. I said, well, you know who sends me there, don't you? She says, well, no, who? I said, your husband. So, of course, that was the end of that conversation. Because, you know, when the Queen summons you, and I'm not trying to push names here, but we did go to Commonwealth Day. We went to Buckingham Palace to represent the Jewish community as the interfaith representative of the Orthodox community. You're mixing with everybody. And you can't just turn around and say, oh, well, I'll mix with you, but I won't mix with you. I have to meet absolutely everyone and the personalities that I've had the opportunity of meeting on those 15 years was something special I never ever dreamed that I would in my career ever be mixing with those people including I may say the Pope Pope John Paul what was he like he was outstanding he was there for a peace beating he wanted everybody and he invited 11 rabbis from the world I got invited and I thought if I could do this why can't I be the mayor representing the wider community as well? I mean, since I've been mayor, I have been to more visits of Christian groups, Catholic groups. I'm even going to the Hare Krishna, to the temple outside Aldenham. I'm going there. I've been there before. I've actually spoken there. And I will tell you something. The respect that we get from all these religions should never be taken for granted. They knew I couldn't go into their little church. So they put up a marquee. 4,000 people were in that marquee. And I had to speak to them. And when I went into the, just to go in to see the president, first thing he said to me, take your shoes off, this is a holy place. Took my shoes off, I put on clean socks that day, so don't worry. (laughs) And you know, you learn about other people, you learn other cultures, you learn, number one, to respect them and they respect you. And the other reason I did this is because there's so much anti-Semitism or people are publishing it and it's getting a little bit tiresome every time I get papers, five, six papers on anti-Semitism. I'm trying to go out and show as an Orthodox Jew I can be with everybody, they respect me. I went to a function with the NSPCC and I went in there and they said, we're delighted you've come for lunch. And I sat down and they brought me in a kosher lunch. We had one when you were there, if you remember, John, at the council where we were all invited. I wasn't expecting it. They had, everybody had meals. She said, don't worry, Rabbi, we've got a meal for you as well. Now, if that's not respect, I don't know what is. And if that doesn't teach the community that we have to show them respect as much as they show us respect, we're, we're, that's one of the reasons I did it. Mayors of boroughs and, and districts get invited to other mayors' functions, and that includes a civic service. Now, civic services 
are on the whole in churches does that make it difficult then the contrary they love it when it's in the synagogue i've already organized i was chaplain to the mayor some years ago and we did it at yavne in the synagogue there we had the choir last year they had uh, a jewish sorry two years ago we had a jewish mayor in radlett and we had the civic service in radlett synagogue i've copied some of them because i've got the shabbaton choir coming the only comment I got from somebody who was there, she says, such a pity we can't participate. I said, well, there's lots of English on the right hand, left-hand side. Read that. We'll do it in the Hebrew, you do it in the English. But we try to show them that we have a most beautiful service. And it is a musical service, and I'm hoping we'll have a lot of music. And it's But that's when you have your civic service. Yes. It means, though, that you can't necessarily go to somebody else's civic service if it's in a church. It will depend. There's ways around it. And I'm very, very lucky because I've got a Filipino deputy mayor, another first for the community, and she goes Friday night and Saturday Shabbos, so I don't have to worry about Shabbat at all. And if we come to the services, if I'm unable to go, she'll represent me. And that's how you get round. If you get, inv- get round if you get invitations on Shabbat for any of anything, event, I don't you give go. it to your deputy. My mayor. secretary knows immediately. She'll phone me. She'll say, "We've passed it over for you. Is that all right?" With pleasure. And again, we've shown them that they have to respect me. There are other Jewish mayors who will go out on a Saturday, on a Shabbat, on a Friday. I'll give you an example how respectful. We have our civic dinner, not a civic service. Civic dinner is always on a Saturday night, but it's always sort of towards the end of winter time, March time. And I found it almost impossible. I had to change and be there. It starts at 6.30. I got there 7.30 because I had to change and get ready. My civic dinner is going to be on a Sunday night, and they've agreed to that. A Sunday night, we've got a guest, I can't say yet because they're all going to be a bit of a shock when they hear who the guest is. It's not the Archbishop, although I must tell you. So it's not the current Pope It's not the current Pope either, no, no, no. But you know, seriously, as I say, I've mixed. You had somebody on here just now, but with the invitations, let me tell you, I've had dinners with Clinton, with Kirk Douglas, these are people I've had astronauts and had, you meet with you meet with all of them and they're all human beings you can play about with them you can make funny faces about them and their voices and everything people make fun of my Scottish accent because I'm from Scotland I don't mind but nevertheless I'm trying to teach the community I'm a human being I'm the same as you you know again a little story I don't know if ever you watched Batman and Robin but there was a film on it, Batman and Robin. <laughs> I, and he, I, I remember. He came in the room with all the different representatives of the, of the world. He took a zap gun and zapped them all, and they all ended up in bottles. But how did they do it? Each one had calcium, skin, blood, etc. But everybody went into the same bottle. It was the fact when they were taken out, they came into a different... We're all the same. And that's what um, I'm trying to I, teach. I didn't know you were a fan of Batman. No, I'm not. But it just so happens it's stuck in my mind. Yeah. And... Uh, of the people that you've met, have any surprised you? Have any thought, oh, they're much nicer than you thought or they're much quieter than you thought? The one that uh, surprised me was the Queen because we make a blessing when we meet the Queen. You make a blessing. So I was with her. There was a whole group of Jewish people behind me. And I said to her, would you mind, please, if I made this special blessing? I explained to her what the blessing was, that the Almighty's granted her this honor and this love. She again took my hand, and I put my hand on top of hers, holding it. I made the brocha, the blessing, and all the people behind me shouted, Amen! She got such a shock. She said, I said, they're just saying, we agree. Oh, thank you so much. But she was so lovely. She said, I want to thank you for taking part in the service with me today, in the celebration. She was so human. Here's a woman of 92, 94. Unbelievable. And mm. I had an opportunity of meeting with her every year for a few times. But Terrific. again, she was something very, very special. And people are wonderful. You look for the good in people and you will find it. Rabbi Alan Plancy, Mayor of Hartsmere, Hertfordshire County Councillor, thank you very much indeed for joining us and enjoy the rest of your municipal year. Thank you very much and you too. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. We first met our next guest when he spoke to us about his gripping novel, Blue Skies Over Berlin. Well, now there's a new one called Nadine, and it looks at the life of a mysterious French dancer, and it's set in London, Paris, and New York. To tell us more, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by John Steinberg here at JW3. 
before we talk about the book, I'd just like to ask you something else, because you actually were a very successful businessman, weren't you, before you became I'm a not sure. I'm not sure I was that successful, but I was in business for very many years before I started writing. And what made you start to write? A number of experiences. I'd always been interested in comedy. But my business activities at the time allowed me to jot down a few of the quips which I thought was funny were funny and a friend of mine said to me I've got a good idea why don't you write a line one line for every day of the year which sounds easy but was actually quite difficult and I did it and I formed a character called he then I thought well without any other prompting I better do something else so I formed another character called she and then I thought well I actually quite like this What's, what shall I do next? Well, I thought me's probably, probably the right thing to do. And so I ended up with around a thousand different sayings of he, she and me and turned them into a range of greetings cards. Unfortunately, the fumer was far too caustic to be commercially viable and I had to try and do something else. But by then, I'd actually got the writing bug. I've never been, a, been on a creative writing course. I've never particularly proficient at school. But this exercise showed me that I, I could actually do something else. The very fact that it hadn't, I hadn't got any uh, public exposure was beside the point. I was doing, at that stage, I was doing it for myself. And so something else I needed to do, which was I came up with an idea for a film. And that film was based on a character called Larry Bloom. And I thought, wouldn't it be an interesting idea, based upon the American general elections of 2001, whether one person in America was holding up the balance of power because there was a recount between Bush and Gore. And I found it very amusing to think that one person was holding up that recount and that decision. So I wrote a synopsis. I didn't really know what it's called, a synopsis. And then I presented it to my accountant at the time. He said, well, I think that's quite a good story. I'll present it to, I've got another client who is a film director. And so he and I got together, an interesting partnership. His name was Ray, and he'd been involved in theater and film. We had a misinterpretation that he thought that I had the money and and I thought he had the talent. (laughs) We actually got together. I I started writing more seriously than I'd ever done before. He had a studio in near London Bridge somewhere, so I went up there once a week and learnt how he thought that the idea was a good idea, but would make a better play than it would a film. So I thought, okay, I don't mind. So I learnt to write dialogue on the job. And I thought it was very, very difficult. It's a part using part of the brain I'd never used before. But six months later, in the beginning of probably the middle part of 2008, we had a first draft of a play called In the Balance. So I said, Ray, what should we do now? He said, well, I don't know. I suppose we better put it on somewhere. So without further ado, I booked a theatre, which was the New End Theatre in Hampstead at the time. And he said, I said, what do I do now? He said, well, you better get a cast together. I said, well, how the hell do I do that? (laughs) He said, well, look, here are a few names. There's an agency and everything else. I said, well, who's going to pay for all these? He said, you are. I said, okay. So, (laughs) cut a long story short, the theatre thought, liked the idea of the the play. I booked the theatre for six weeks. And the play did very well. There were a number of sold-out performances. Unfortunately, the the more the play went on, the more money I started to lose. And there's a very funny line in the producers, Mel Brooks' producer, and I remember Ray and I were standing outside the theatre, and everybody was laughing, and I said, they love it, we're ruined, which was the producer's line. (laughs) And I thought, well, look, I really like doing this, but how am I going to do it again without losing any more money? So it was very easy. I thought a shorter run and half the cast would be a help. And so a second play followed in 2010 based upon a financial crisis called W for Banker. (laughs) And W for Banker did equally well. I lost a lot less money, (laughs) which was a very, very good sign. And I had to do something else. So at that stage, we thought, well, the only way this is actually going to work is if the play gets transferred to the West End. We thought the first one would, and it nearly did. The second one wasn't quite right. We then wrote the third one together, had a couple of readings in the West End, but no one would take it up, and I decided I'd lost far enough, too much money to take the thing further. And so 
we parted company. Ray had other things he wanted to do. And I needed to find out at that stage in 2011 whether I could write on my own. And I start, had an idea based upon a Talmudic character called Raish Lakish. And I thought, what a great idea when he was purported to have been a gladiator early on in life and then he became a sage. And I liked that journey. This was the first of the series of journeys which I started to write. And I wrote Shimon as a play. Opportunity, a couple of months later, an old friend of mine said to me, can I introduce you to a publisher? So I said, well, it's fine, but I've not written anything that requires publishing other than plays that I'm not going to put on anymore. So I got introduced to a publisher in the north of England who liked the idea and said, why don't you try and write a novel? Well, I spent the last few years trying to write plays, and I thought, okay, I'll write a novel. But I didn't know how to do it. About a year and a half later, the first draft of Shimon saw the light of day. It was very, very hard. It was a very different skill from writing for theatre, which is purely dialogue. This had to be something different. And it was a very great success. Well, it was a sufficient success or not for me to continue writing. And that's what I want to ask you about now, because now you've written this Nadine. Nadine, yes. Nadine is is the third novel. The third novel, yes. There are other novels written, but they haven't haven't come on show yet for one or two reasons. I've parted with the traditional route of agents and publishers. I now have a company which is actually published, Shimon, which is a kind of independent self-publishing company. And I now pretty well do everything myself. I have my own editor, but I know how to do it without having to go through the troubles of agents. Now tell us about Nadine. Nadine, <laughs> Nadine, Nadine, is, Nadine is, as you said, a tragic figure. She's a French dancer who catches the eye of the protagonist in the book called Greenberg. Greenberg is, or was, one of the most successful musical producers musicals producers in the West End until things went quite badly wrong. And he's just lost an awful lot of money with his latest flop. He doesn't know how to tell his wife. He's been unhappily married to this other woman for 15 years. That There's a very good chance that he's going to go bankrupt and they're going to lose the house. And so he retreats to his office high above St. Martin's Lane one day. His secretary just fresh out of university because he can't afford anything better. Puts the morning newspapers on his desk and he starts going through the art sections of the paper and comes across an article of a very famous Broadway director. And that Broadway director drums up a memory. And that memory is about the only woman he ever truly loved and the unfulfilled obligation to her. So the book tells the story of how Greenberg met Nadine all those years ago, 40 years ago. It then catches up into real time where Greenberg has this trouble of trying to save his business because he is going to go out of business and how at the end of the third part of the book the two things get together where Nadine becomes more than a memory and manages strange ways to salvage Greenberg's reputation. And is this totally made up out of your head, or yeah. is it based yeah, yeah, no, on... it's totally made up, but the characters all have character, my characters are myself, people who I've met, etc., etc. I mean, the, someone said in an interview that I, I did, or a questionnaire, how do, you, how do you come up with a protagonist? Well, not often many of them are based on my own characteristics, people I know, etc., etc. But it is based upon a kind of experience I had in theatre. I like the idea of doing something about theatre. And the book is, at one level, about theatre, but it's also a story of unrequited love. And is it, it's doing wonders, is it? It was published on the 22nd of May. Hopefully it will do wonders. It's a, it's a little too soon to tell. But it's also, because it's very visual, it's able to be adapted, I believe, for TV and film. There are treatments prepared for TV and film. And in due course, I hope they, they are sent out to the right people who can actually make it happen. Have you had any of your other books done on Blue television? S- or- no, Blue Skies was near to being taken up by a production company. That didn't happen. But I'm actually writing a, a sequel for Blue Skies at the moment. That will be the fifth novel, which will be published the year after next. I wish you the best of luck with that. If we want to go and buy Nadine... Nadine is on Amazon, both on Kindle and on in hard copy, under my name, 
and my website is Steinberg Stories, which shows the books that I've written and also has a link to Amazon there as well. Look forward to looking at that. John Steinberg, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for asking me. And now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this time it comes from Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner, the senior rabbi of Reform Judaism. I've been thinking about pride, pride in London and pride around the world. Recently, I was in Israel for just after Tel Aviv pride, seeing Israeli flags next to the pride flag everywhere you go. It was extremely uplifting for me. And uh, some of our synagogues celebrate pride by having a special pride Shabbat, Shabbat Ga'ava, Shabbat of pride, and singing part of Hallel for this. For me, at the core of pride is the word Kedusha, meaning holiness in its simple form, straightforward form, Kedusha is about holiness. But what it really means to be a holy people is to be a different type of people, to be separate, to be distinctive. And of course, the best way to express that is to be queer. We are a queer, different people. And Kedusha is about expressing the difference between queer and the rest of our lives. And what's interesting now, where you have a majority of young people who identify not as straight, that's so many of us and young people and people of all ages who would seem align themselves with the meaning of pride, of being proud of who we are. And from a Jewish point of view, I think that's a beautiful way to talk about Kedusha, holiness, specialness, and queerness. And our thanks to Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner for our rabbinic thought for the month. That's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thanks to our guests, Impressionist Jess Robinson, and don't forget, she'll be at JW3 on the 18th of July. Also thanks to author Howard Jacobson, telling us about his new book, Live a Little. He'll be at JW3 on the 11th of July. Rabbi Alan Plancy joined us too. He's become the new mayor of Hartsmere. And we also heard from author John Steinberg, chatting about his new book, Nadine. Thanks, too, to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and, of course, to you for listening. You can always listen to this or, indeed, any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3. From me, John Kay. From me, Tony Honigberg. From me, Kate Fulton. And from me, Clive Roslin. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Bye-bye.